Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Well, hello and welcome to the Kelly Dry Enforcement Podcast. Uh, this is part two of our September 2019 update. Uh, we're going to talk about activities at the FCC's Enforcement Bureau through um, for, th- in August and through the early parts of September. Uh, I'm Steve Augustino. I'm Brad Currier. And we are the enforcement guys. So um, if you haven't listened already, part one, we talked about a trend in uh, individual commissioners conducting enforcement investigations. Went through a number of examples of that. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, I will say this is a standalone part of the episode. So if you didn't listen to that yet, you can continue listening now and catch up later. Um, What we're going to talk about today in this part two are... Um, The number of actions the FCC has taken in the last month, um, really it kind of picked up. It was a busy end of summer for the Enforcement Bureau. Yeah, that's right, which is surprising. Right. Very much so. So we we have four things um, for you on this. We have a consent decree violation, which is relatively rare. We have another interference item. We have a cramming settlement to talk about. And then we have some enforcement relating to emergency alert tones. And we're going to take them in that order. Yep, that's right. So first up, we're going to talk about a notice of apparent liability, proposing a fine for failing to adhere to a consent decree. So the FCC settlements generally take the form of a consent decree, which outlines both the payment obligations as well as the compliance requirements agreed to between the FCC or sometimes the Enforcement Bureau and the target. Now, consent decree compliance requirements. Now, they can vary from you know compliance plan to compliance plan or consent decree to consent decree, but the uh, obligations almost invariably include non-compliance reporting. And what it usually means is that the target is under the obligation to report to the FCC within, say, 15 days of discovering a non-compliance event and provide certain information that's requested in the consent decree. Yeah. And, and this is a pretty standard feature of the compliance plan obligation. You know, you get to that point in the consent decree, it says, you know, the target agrees they'll have a compliance plan and the compliance plan will address this, this, and this. They'll do a training program, things like that. So there's some some standard stuff in there, almost boilerplate. It's not exactly. And, and you're right. The reporting of violations is one thing. You know, outside of these consent decrees, right, parties, generally speaking, do not have an obligation to report violations to the FCC. There are some exceptions to that, but, you know, as a broader statement, that's true. So they're taking on something voluntarily here and doing this in the consent decree. Sure. It's actually because there isn't this continuing reporting obligation that it does get put into consent decrees. And what it's really designed to is to have the company almost self-monitor their future compliance for a period of time um, so that the commission can sort of keep tabs on that. Now, 
because of this obligation, it sometimes creates difficulties or uncertainties because, you know, when a non-compliance event occurs, is it when, say, a potential violation happens? Is it when the company discovers it? Is it when they've done an investigation to figure out how to fix it? And this all creates some uncertainties regarding the disclosure obligation. Right. And, and it's even unclear sometimes whether it is a violation and you get that that kind of consultation part with your lawyers and you're like, do I have to disclose this? If I disclose it, am I admitting that we have violated the rules or can I disclose possible violations? So there are some real complications there. But that's not really the situation in the case that we're going to talk about. Though. No, that's right. I mean, so in generally, it's rare for the commission to propose a fine for violations of these types of procedural obligations. It's mostly seen when a company just flat out doesn't pay the settlement you know, a fee that they agreed to. But on August 6, the FCC proposed a $233,000 fine against broadcaster subsidiaries of Cumulus Media for alleged sponsorship ID violations and the failure to report some of these apparent violations under the terms of a earlier 2011 consent decree. Now, that consent decree also dealt with alleged sponsorship ID violations and required noncompliance reporting within 15 days of discovery of future noncompliance. Now, the FCC claims that Cumulus Media subsidiaries committed 26 more sponsorship ID violations and waited nearly eight months to report, you know, 13 of these apparent violations. Right. So it was it was more of the same type of violation. They were reported by Cumulus, but at least one, you know, one of those reports of 13 of the violations was late. It wasn't within the 15 days right. that was required. Yeah, basically at one group of violations that was reported much, you know, long after they occurred. And then you had another group of violations that were reported within the 15-day uh, timeline of the consent decree. Right. And, and, and so the, the commission, you know, I think understandably took enforcement action for the substantive violations, right? So, each of those sponsorship ID violations was a part of this consent decree. Right. So, you know, again, this is a proposed fine. So based on the yeah consent decree from before. And what they did is they proposed a $25,000 fine for the failure to report the potential violations within the 15-day time frame from the earlier consent decree. Again, in addition to the proposed fine for the new apparent sponsorship ID violations. Now, Commissioner Starks criticized the sides of that $25,000 fine for the apparent reporting violation, noting that prior precedent where the FCC actually imposed the statutory maximum penalty for the failure to report. Now, the commissioner expressed concern that the fine will be used by the communications bar, uh, basically attorneys reading all of these very closely, to argue against higher proposed penalty for consent decree reporting violations in the future. All right. I think he said, what, savvy enforcement lawyers or something like that would key on this, and this would establish a poor precedent for the enforcement. Sure. And by including that language, he guaranteed that that would happen. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of an issue where, you know, while that's true, the precedent that the commissioner was talking about actually concerned misrepresentation allegations where actually the statutory maximum is the base forfeiture. So it's sort of um, you know, a situation where, well, anytime you're not reporting, it isn't always that you're necessarily misleading the FCC. So there's no reason to think that the FCC can't uh, accelerate enforcement in this area or investigation in this area. But generally speaking, the normal practice of the FCC is they're not necessarily actively monitoring compliance with consent decrees you know, every single day. They, they, they do rely on these self-reports 
And so um, I think that's the point that's trying to be made here is that it's important that these reports occur. That's the most, that, that's that's critical, that's and that they happen then, and that they happen timely. Right. I said that's really the big takeaway for those that have a consent decree, which is make sure that you institutionalize all of the requirements. And I mean all of the requirements, including this obligation to report violations that needs to be done um, in order to ensure that you stay in compliance with this. But but you're right. I mean, your other point, I think, is is really um, helpful here, right? The The failure to report or a delay in reporting isn't necessarily in a misrepresentation. It could be in certain circumstances, but, you know, there wasn't anything in this NAL that alleged that there was an intent to misrepresent or anything like that. Right. So, so okay. All right, so that's item number one on our agenda. Um, now we're going to go back to something that is um, had been pretty common. Uh, this particular instance is, I think, a little different than others. But um, the FCC under Chief Rosemary Harold has spent a lot of time focusing on interference um, and things that actively or potentially cause interference with other licensed operations. And we have an example of that uh, this last month as well. Yeah, and you know, to Steve's point, we've talked a lot about, well, potential interference with public safety communications. And that's what we have here. So on August 22nd, the FCC issued an enforcement advisory about interference caused by what are known as unlicensed national infrastructure devices. It's called uni devices, and they're mostly used to provide uh, unlicensed wireless broadband services, um, you know, commercially uh, around areas. Um, the problem with that is that they sometimes can interfere with FAA weather radar. So uni devices operate in significant parts of the five gigahertz band, like I said, often providing commercial wireless broadband services. But the FAA also uses parts of the five gigahertz band for what's known as terminal Doppler weather radar which detects wind shear and other local hazardous conditions that may affect both aircraft takeoffs and landings. This is very important stuff, that's a, that's actually. A, that's a pretty important <laughs> use. Yeah. And interference from uni devices to FAA weather radar has been a perennial enforcement concern. This is not the first time this issue's ever come up. Um, it's resulted in multiple proposed fines over the past few years and enforcement actions, as well as an early advisory on this issue. So under the FCC's rules, the uni devices can use this 5 gigahertz band with FAA operations so long as they don't cause harmful interference to the FAA's operations and accept any interference that they receive. Now, there are specific rules that actually control uni device use of frequency. We don't need to get into those. They're fairly detailed. But the most important thing is, is that uni, uni device operating these FAA frequencies must have what's known as dynamic frequency selection. And what that does is this function basically sniffs out the spectrum it can detect this FAA weather radar. When it does, it will move operations off of those frequencies so as not to cause interference. And so you can see the important basically senses and moves right. uh, and, the and, operations. And, and hence the, you know, the choice of this particular method, right? An enforcement advisory, this is extremely important because of the damage that it can happen, the harm that is uh, you know, at stake if you interfere with these radar systems. And so the FCC put out this advisory to warn the public and, and spread the news that, look, these are what the obligations are. These are what the requirements are. Yeah, and like the most uh, recent enforcement advisory we talked about regarding LED signs, uh, in this enforcement advisory, they do a top-to-bottom advisory about where you are in the supply chain. So they start off 
uh, by warning the actual uni operators to ensure that devices are properly configured to detect and avoid interference to FAA weather radar, including through the use of dynamic frequency selection function. Uh, the enforcement advisory notes that actually this function often is enabled automatically when the device is actually set to the U.S. country code. Um, the enforcement advisory also warns uni device manufacturers and retailers that the devices must come with this dynamic frequency selection function and should not contain software or other controls allowing users to disable this function. It does also basically ask manufacturers and retailers to remind the users to only use permitted configurations on their uni devices. Right, right. Yeah, you're, you're right. Sort of top to bottom warnings in the supply chain, this whole thing should be addressed. And so, you know, as is reasonably common with this type of thing, right, the enforcement advisory um, comes out, it's also accompanied by several enforcement actions relating to this. Yeah, that's right. So there was a group of three uh, proposed fines of $25,000 each issued the same day as the enforcement advisory to wireless broadband service providers located in in Puerto Rico. Now, in each of these cases, the provider operated uni devices um, apparently without enabling the dynamic frequency selection function or using the proper country code, thereby causing interference to FAA weather radar. Now, in addition to the proposed fines, the FCC also ordered each service provider to review their current uni operations and report on whether they are in compliance within 30 days. That's actually fairly standard, along with the $25,000 fine. All that's fairly consistent with precedent. Right. Yeah. They haven't, they haven't escalated the base forfeiture or anything here. And so, I mean, really, you kind of look at these, I look at these three as sort of the exclamation point on the enforcement advisory, right? It's sort of like, hey, we're reminding you about this. And here's why, um, you know, these entities, uh, you know, I don't know how common it is or, or you know, what the specific situations were there. Um, there really were, you know, those actions, I think, just serve as examples and a reminder of the importance of these particular uh, rules. Yeah, an advisory is, you know, all well and good, but if it doesn't come with an uh, understanding of why it's important, you know, to you as a stakeholder, that's the reason why they include the proposed fines when they issue these. Okay. All right. And next up is going to, we're going to talk about a cramming settlement. Okay. So on August 13th, uh, the Enforcement Bureau announced that it settled a nearly three-year-long investigation into whether CenturyLink included unauthorized charges from third-party service providers on their customers' bills. Now, also known as cramming, the assessment of unauthorized charges is a major source of consumer complaints and a frequent for a focus of enforcement actions, something we've talked about actually on this podcast before. Now, this consent decree falls in the wake of a handful of enforcement actions for cramming, but when they were accompanied by unlawful carrier switches, also known as slamming, and the FCC's adoption of new rules codifying its longstanding ban on cramming in 2018. Now, the CenturyLink settlement underscores the responsibility borne by carriers for the charges they include on customer bills, even for services they don't provide, and the need to maintain internal safeguards to ensure such third-party charges are actually authorized. Right. And that was the factual scenario involved here. It's CenturyLink was the third-party, was billing for third-party charges. So the allegations here were that these other entities were either not providing the services that were authorized, not getting the proper authorization, which is a more common scenario in the cramming situation as well. They never got authorization or they didn't get the right kind of authorization or get it from the right person. Um, it was then placed on the central link bills. The customers paid it. So 
that's kind of the scenario. Yeah. So CenturyLink agreed to pay uh, $550,000 to settle the investigation. They also agreed to cease nearly all third-party billing and implement a refund process for affected customers. Now, that's pretty standard, um, but this this consent decree is also notable for several reasons. I don't know if you want to do the first right. one. I'll do the first yeah. one just because this is what I spotted when, when I saw this, right? This is the first pure cramming case of Rosemary Herald's tenure at the Enforcement Bureau. And it's the first one that involves third-party charges since a series of actions against major carriers between 2014 and 2016. So this is, while cramming has been around and, and for a while, this is really the first of, the first time that they've returned to this topic. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a trend or not, but it's kind of, okay, we're back into that. We're back to addressing those types of questions now. Right. And so second, many of these compliance plan obligations in the CenturyLink consent decree will actually last for four years. Uh, this is different than the usual boilerplate three-year term for most compliance plan obligations. And that's likely a reflection of the long-term structural changes to billing processes that are going to be required from the company as part of the consent decree. And then finally, unlike past consent decrees under the previous uh, enforcement bureau chief, the CenturyLink settlement contains no admission of liability by the company and instead actually affirmatively states that the consent decree does not represent any finding of noncompliance. And that's significant. That's a big departure from, uh, from past practice and from the prior uh, – from Rosemary Herald's predecessor as Enforcement Bureau Chief. And, you know, I don't know whether this puts a nail in the coffin, but it's pretty – you know, it's, it's a pretty significant blow um, – to that former approach, um, you know, it's not universal, but this is we're, we're seeing here is a replacement of that admissions language. We admit that we violated the rules, or we admit that these actions occurred, um, and that was, you know, a a bedrock requirement um, in the past. Um, and we had some. Some some issues about how bedrock it, it ultimately was, but but that was the approach, and that was what you had to recommend understand going in, right? Um, of the old approach, and now this really to me is a signal that that insistence on admissions is waning or perhaps has waned almost entirely. Yeah. I mean, before this podcast is out, we're going to talk about a situation where there is some admissions in a consent decree. So it's not fully dead, but what it at least suggests... It's, more, it's yeah. mostly dead, <laughs> as I said in The Princess Bride. That's right. right. Um, what it does all suggest is that at least the Enforcement Bureau is open to entertaining alternative consent decree provisions in not just cramming related settlements, but other enforcement actions in the future. Right. Okay. All right. So let, let's bring us down then to the the last topic. This is probably the one that uh, listeners had already heard about because it involved um, a number of TV broadcasts that were, um, you know, were known and I saw it picked up in general media um, a number of places. Sure. It's picked up in general media because we're going to talk a little bit about some general media here and we're going to talk about the misuse of emergency alert system and wireless emergency alert tones. Um, on August 15th, the FCC issued an enforcement advisor regarding the use of, again, emergency alert system, we call it EAS, wireless emergency alert, WEA, tones for entertainment or advertising purposes. Now, most people in the audience have heard the jarring tones that make up a EAS attention signal or the similar WEA attention signal that's used for mobile phones, either through an authorized public service announcement or test. 
Right. And we're not going to play it here, unfortunately, because I'm not even sure if we're allowed to in the podcast. <laughs> I think we're okay. But what people may not know, again, is that it's illegal to use these tones or, and this is important, simulations of the tones, except in actual emergencies or authorized tests. Now, the ban is designed to do a lot of things, but really to avoid public confusion and alert fatigue is uh, where people don't treat the emergency tones seriously. It also avoids, and this has actually happened and has resulted in enforcement action, false activations of the EESWA equipment. The tones themselves contain information that actually activates the equipment. Um, and when that happens um, you know, due to a, a, a false uh, EAS tone or WEA tone, it can you know, spread incorrect in emergency information, also lock out authorities from transmitting the correct information. Um, so the enforcement advisory stated that the FCC is concerned about the use of EAS and WEA tones to capture audience attention during shows or advertisements and emphasized that the rules ban the use of both simulated EAS, WEA tones, as well as the actual tones. And the advisory warned that misuse of the tones may also violate federal laws prohibiting the transmission of false distress signals and other FCC rules banning broadcast hoaxes. So there's there's a lot of things they might uh, bring down on you if you misuse these tones. That's yeah. basically the, it's core, the substance of yeah, it. Right. Core public safety obligations and goals of the FCC. Right. And again, that's another consistent thing uh, from this Enforcement Bureau, right? We're focusing on the core. We're focusing on you know those central things. So um, let me just move this a little bit. So as is common, right? You get an enforcement advisory. You also get a few enforcement actions on that same topic. Yeah, and here you got more than a few. I mean, this ended up uh, not only on the day of the enforcement advisory, so we'll start there. So on the same day the enforcement advisory comes out, the FCC issues four consent decrees settling investigations into the misuse of EAS or WEA tones. These are actions that generated more than a few news stories, like you said, Steve. So I'll just run them down real quick. There was a uh, $395,000 settlement with broadcaster ABC for using simulated WEA tones multiple times during a sketch on Jimmy Kimmel Live. There's a over $100,000 settlement with cable network AMC for including simulated EAS tones multiple times in an episode of The Walking Dead. There's a $68,000 settlement with a cable network Discovery. This one's interesting. They actually included an actual WEA tone that was caught during filming live in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey uh, for an episode of something called Lone Star Law. And then there was a uh, $67,000 settlement with a Los Angeles area radio broadcaster for including simulated ES tones in a morning show promotion. All right. Now, before we go into that settlement, why don't we just wrap it up? Then a couple days later, we got one more enforcement action. Yeah. Most recently, the FCC proposed a $272,000 fine against broadcaster CBS for transmitting a sound effect similar to the EES tone to accompany a tornado warning in an episode of Young Sheldon. Now, the FCC found that CBS made modifications to the actual EAS tone, but that alone did not make broadcasting the sound effect permissible because the audio elements used were, quote-unquote, substantially similar to the actual EAS tones and could cause confusion, could lead to alert fatigue. Okay. So that, that's a lot of money in, you know, one, two, three, four, five different actions on this. Yeah, in a short amount of time, which once again shows 
that this uh, Enforcement Bureau and this FCC has certainly taken an approach of coordinating enforcement actions around a certain topic at certain times. Right, right. Okay. So now we got we got two minor points on this, right? In the consent decrees, so at least one of them was a settlement. Um, actually, the first four were all settlements. Right. right. So everything that came out on the same day as the enforcement advisory were you know, planned consent decrees. It makes sense. They were already, you know, signed and, and delivered and basically came out the same day as one big package. But this, uh, the, 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 uh, the action against CBS is a proposed fine. And there are some back and forth and potential um, arguments and actually going all the way to the First Amendment. Uh, here, you know, this is actually used as part of a tornado warning for dramatic purposes in an episode. Um, and so there, there are arguments about at least that CBS has made, but the FCC has been pretty clear about this, um, which is when they say do not use these tones, they mean do not use them. It doesn't matter what they're for, doesn't have to be for an advertisement, doesn't even necessarily have to be to grab audience attention, even if it's the type of tone that would actually happen if you're trying to accurately portray the situation. Right. That's what I said. If it logically fits within the entertainment that yeah. you're doing, that it doesn't necessarily make it And again, even if they're simulated tones, even if they're not the actual tones, the FCC, the answer is no. Right. Just don't do it. And it's not the first time we heard about this, right? No. I mean, the FCC has warned about the misuse of emergency tones in the past. In fact, they issued a, a an enforcement advisory on this along with issuing proposed fines against Viacom, NBC Universal, ESPN and Turner. Now there we had situations where we had ES tones used in movie advertisements, we had ones also used on comedy shows, and it's really the same issue. It's just happening again and I feel like the FCC basically saw this critical mass um, of these actions and said, okay, it's time for a reminder. Right. It's been five years. Maybe it's time again to do it. So, so okay. Well, that was a lot. That was a, a very meaty update for us here in September, a very active enforcement bureau this past month. Um, we will be back again next month, give or take, uh, depending upon how active they are and whether it continues in the fall. So we thank you for listening. And uh, check, on, check in with us again next time. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.